Welcome to the Super Psych Podcast, the podcast for psychoanalyzing superheroes and more. I'm Heather Ness, and today I'm doing something a little bit different. Today I have a guest, Alex Sargent, from fantasyanimation.org, and we're going to be talking about the film Venom. Hey, Alex. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, you're actually my first guest on here. Am I? Well, I'm very privileged then. Yeah. So, uh, okay, cool. Awesome. Uh, so you're we got a we got a difference in in time zones here because you're across the pond. Uh, but tell me, Alex, about tell me about your background because you know this, this I, my background's in psychology and that's what I focus on. But yours yours is a little different in your approach. Yeah, sure. Um, so my background is as a, um, a film studies researcher. I work here in the UK at uh, the University of Bournemouth. Um, and I have a PhD um, in film studies, specialising in uh, the history of fantasy cinema and um, psychoanalytic approaches to uh, to cinema. Um, and if anyone's done their film studies classes, they've probably had that professor that insists on sort of throwing really hardcore theories at something they thought was supposed to be kind of fun. And I certainly had that experience when I was sort of doing film at, at college. Um, and that's where my research is, is focused. So my, my PhD project basically examined or psychoanalyzed um, how we make meaning out of fantasy because fantasy is a very odd thing to sort of enjoy if you think about it quite rationally um, it's something that we sort of you know we enjoy the impossible we enjoy stepping away from reality and while that makes sense sort of intuitively it actually doesn't make any sense if you really think about you know the psychological processes going on there so I drew from a lot of um, psychoanalytic theory uh, mainly something called object relations psychoanalysis uh, which we can go into if we want to, um, but, but basically a, a field of psychoanalytic inquiry that's very interested in the imagination and the role of fantasy in sort of structuring the psyche um, and trying to think about how we might think about Hollywood films and fantasy movies or superhero movies as, as sort of enacting those processes as we watch them. That's amazing. That just like, that just, that just started off like every fiber of my nerd being. Um, oh. I love that stuff. Well, I like I like starting off fibers of nerd being. That's, uh, <laughs> that's probably that's actually my next research paper. Um, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it so great though? Because um, it sounds like you love what you do, um, and I finally got into an area of psychology where I can just you know study some amazing stuff. Um, but it's so awesome though, you know, to just dive into your your interests. What um. So it's not just you and fantasyanimation.org, but what led to you guys creating that? Yes, sure. So, so the project I'm involved in right now, um, I, I do with a colleague who works at King's College London, um, Chris Holliday, who is an expert in computer animation. And I actually did my PhD at, at King's College London. So we met whilst we were both sort of uh, grad students there, and he now, now works at the university and I work elsewhere. Um, but what we discovered um, was that we ended up sort of having very similar conversations about very different to topics. So I was a researcher in, in fantasy cinema. That was sort of how I identified as myself. And he was a researcher in animation. But we were often talking about the same films from different vantage points. Um, so what fantasy animation, um, uh, the organization we run, the website that we run, tries to do is basically look at that big, broad relationship between an animation and fantasy cinema. Because if you sort of think about it, again, Lots of films that are animated are fantasy movies. Lots of fantasy movies are animations, um, both in live action 
whatever that means, and in sort of traditional sort of Walt Disney cell animation. So we, through a series of blogs and podcasts and things like that, we, we sort of tentatively try and look at what the, the relationship between the two of them are. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of the project I, I'm vaguely involved with now, alongside my sort of independent research, which is which is more on the sort of psychoanalytic uh, line of inquiry. Chris, uh, Chris is not a natural Freudian by nature, as lots of people are not. I am prone to understand, so um, which is which is very understandable. Um, so it's more about how animation and fantasy sit culturally, historically, and aesthetically. What is it about the two things that seem to merge so nicely together? And we we're very keen to sort of attract. Um, academics but as well as sort of practitioners animators storytellers fans um to come and talk about the relationship with us so it's much more broad church than the sort of dense dry world of psychoanalytic theory that's amazing that's awesome i love that um you know somehow i've I've had this conversation recently with people because um spider-man into the spider-verse came out and i don't know if it did as well at the theater just because people were like, oh, it's an animated film, that's a kid's film. And I feel like I went through that phase where, like, you know, you're a little kid and you watch the animation because that's what you do, and you're the demographic, and then you, you're like, oh, I, I've aged out of it. I have found that as I'm getting older, and I really like my fantasy and my sci-fi, I'm getting back into animation. I almost prefer it for my, my fantasy and sci-fi. And just so part of my part of my own work um, that I'm starting to get into is like the cognitive psychology of like how how does our brain understand you know, graphic novels or animation and stuff. So I'm just super excited to have you here. Thanks. Yeah. No. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic and and um, and yeah. I'm not I'm not a book. Chris and I um, released called Fantasy Animation, which is available to buy for listeners, but it's extortionately priced at the moment, so I wouldn't worry about it. Um, but um, there is a there is a chapter on cognitive psychology um, that, that looks at sort of um, how fantasy characters can be identified with animation fantasy characters, as well as sort of philosophical approaches. So we're very interested in lots of different ways of approaching this topic. Um, yeah, so that's, that sounds fascinating. Your interests, maybe we'll have to. Uh, have to have, um, do a sort of cross promotion and have you on the site sometime. So oh, that would be lovely. That'd be awesome. Again. I'm going to check out your book though. So what, what, why I brought you in here or what are we were going to talk about today? Um, and this kind of deviates from the podcast. We normally talk about like a single character and ground it more in, in comics. Um, but today we're going to talk about the film Venom. Uh-huh. So first of all, what are your first impressions of the film? Yeah, so um, so I hadn't seen it until we were chatting sort of before the, before the podcast about what to, to cover, and I was very excited to see it. It's one of those who sort of um, slipped me by at the cinema because um, I don't know what the reviews were like in the States, but over here they were pretty um, stinky. Um, but the film did really well at the box office. There was obviously some word of mouth interest in it. And from colleagues and friends who'd gone to see it, they had assured me that it wasn't a film you were likely to forget, even if you didn't like it. And I did, li- I did like it, actually. I think it's, I mean, I'll be British about this if you don't mind, but it's absolutely balmy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's off its rocker, as we might say on the cell phone, but it's, um, you know, it, but it's, it's like the film in many ways is its central character in that it can't quite decide what it is between about eight different things. 
um, but it's quite pleasurable to watch it fight itself out. Um, but it's not like it's not it's not a form, formulaic run-of-the-mill Marvel movie. It's something very peculiar, and that might be to do with some of the issues to the main character, which we'll talk about. And it's also, I think, just that the studio clearly were pushing this thing in about eight different directions, and it sort of ended up being this weird mishmash of dark fantasy, really odd subversive comedy, and yet yeah, slightly like paranoid post-Trump. Uh, it's a thriller. So it was really interesting. Yeah, you know, I actually went to see it. Um, it came out around my birthday, so I wanted to see it for my birthday. I was really excited. Um, but yeah, I can't say that it's like a good movie. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I loved it. I had a good time. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. They couldn't. There was there was definitely different moments where like I thought it was going to be kind of you know, dark, because it's Venom. But then wow. they would just say the most ridiculous things. Um, one of my favorite lines from it was uh, Jenny, Jenny Slate's character, the doc, one of the doctors, uh -huh. said, science never sleeps. And I, did, I think I was just saying that out of context for days afterwards. I mean, that just cracked me up. I couldn't quite work out if the Jenny Slate character was meant to be humorous or not, or whether I was just finding bits to laugh at because I like Jenny Slate so much. Right. Um, do you know what I mean? She's sort of, it's very, like, buttoned-up role for her, but you're right, she has, she's full of these lines that are like, that, well, maybe it's just a comedian delivering the script in the only way she knows how, but um, it's, it's full of lines like that, you're right. Right. So, uh, so let's, let's talk about... Uh... You kind of you kind of alluded to some thoughts that you had on how about Eddie Brock as a character? Okay, um, so so Eddie Brock as a character, uh, and I'm not I'm not a comic book expert. I should stress. Supposedly I'm a film expert, but I'm not a comic book expert. So I'd be interested to talk about how this relates to um, the wider sort of law. But all I really know are the two Eddie Brocks that I've seen um, in cinema, which was the, sort of the Topher Grace version. Spider-Man 3, which I don't think is as bad as as people like to think it is, I must confess, but maybe I'm the only one out there. Um, and Venom, which obviously we have Tom Hardy in the role. Um, the very nature of his character seems, seems to be designed to invoke this idea of sort of splitting or this idea of um, a tormented psyche pulled between different parts, right? That's sort of the very nature of the Venom character mm -hmm. and this idea of... Um, disparate parts doing different things um and and somehow coming together in some sort of symbiotic form right so i think there's something very interesting about the fact that um eddie brock as a character um can't be very unified because by the very nature of what he's trying to be for the drama he has to be able to be sort of slightly schizophrenic in in what he what he is so it's actually difficult to pin down what he is because particularly in the first 20 minutes, I don't know what this character is even before Venom turns up, let alone once we get the sort of sort of um, bass playing, uh, gruff alien voice that starts to sort of um, riff off him, screwball comedy wise. But to me, he's a character that seems to allow us to sort of think about the ways in, the ways in which we construct our sense of identity, mm -hmm. in a, in, not to get too sort of, you know, bogged down in detail here, but like, it's a character that is anxious about who he is and not in the kind of trite, who am I 
Disney way, but in the literally, like, who is this man? What is his motivations? And what is his defining characteristics? And it's still difficult to work that out. Right. So when, for the sake of the listeners, when we were getting into the sense of identity and the, the splitness, you're not really talking so much like like multiple personalities you're talking about the sense of self that eddie has and he doesn't necessarily seem to have that nailed down yeah i think i think that's i think that's what and perhaps that is his primary motivation seems to be to generate some cohesive sense of self right and you might have a different perspective from this from me in terms of cognitive psychology but but from a psychoanalytic point of view um uh we're kind of very interested in this idea of how one constructs a notion of self because everyone thinks they have one um, but but actually we spend a long time in our lives being very anxious about about what that self is and about um, the difference between how people perceive us and how we think we are uh, the worrying about whether we are behaving the way we are expected to behave or not mm. so actually as human beings we're very good at splitting ourselves into different uh, sort of levels of, of selfdom, yeah? And what Venom does is sort of play with that a little bit, and we've got a character that literally splits himself into two um, through this sort of narrative device of the symbi- symbiotic alien thing, yeah? Uh, and I'm not quite sure how I read the, uh, the Venom thing. On one level, Venom is sort of like this base version of Eddie, right? Who mm-hmm. is the sort of, you know, I mean, they're sort of in the Freudian term, he would be the id, you know, the sort of... Um, the, the, the instinctual version of ourselves versus the sort of higher cerebral. But on another level, he's sort of the voice of consciousness at the same time, yeah? The, the, sometimes the Venom character is the, is the thing egging Eddie on to go and do something, to go and sort of be the hero, in, in, at least in this film, yeah? Um, so basically, it's almost like Venom is everything outside that voice in our heads that go, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm not sure. I'm going over here now. I think I'm hungry. I might have a sandwich. That kind of basic day-to-day negotiation through life is Eddie. And then all the absolutes in life, I am brave. I am kind. I am intelligent. Seem to be represented in this sort of crazy, um, bug-eating, rabbit-swallowing, black swamp monster. So there you go. There's an end of a sentence that I'm proud of. (laughs) So would you say, like, so if, if say, like, at the start of the movie and Eddie doesn't have this great sense of self, do you think that becomes, his, his identity becomes more cohesive with Venom? Or do you think it, be, it gets split more? That's an interesting thought. What's, I mean, what's his, what's his motivation at the beginning of the movie? I tried to write it down and try to think about it. He's introduced as a reporter, right, mm-hmm. who... Um, who, what his job? He, he's the sort of. He seems to be a voice of consciousness. He seems to be like I am the, you know, all the president's men style reporter. I won't take. Um, am I have to swear on this. Yeah, go for uh, it. Yeah, okay. I don't take no shit from anybody. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll go and get the scoop. All this kind of stuff. Um, and that, after about ten minutes, suddenly switches, and he's not that. He's the down and out. Uh, bum who's lost everything and doesn't care about anything and has no ideals. So within 20 minutes, we've gone from incredibly idealistic, um, no compromising human being, full of ideals but but not living in the real world, to someone very immersed in the real world with absolutely no ideals or anything else. So what the venom brings to him, you're right, is perhaps that that he can sort of be both um, and neither at the same time because he's not required to be cohesive because the venom character is inherently uncohesive. As all superhero characters are, by the way, mm. you know, all superheroes are incohesive. They're all um, masking identities beyond who they are, and, and, and are split 
personalities in that respect between their sort of ego and their alter ego. Right. Yeah. Right. Um. So, and it kind of gets to the point of like whether or not you refer to venom as as a symbiotic as if it's a relationship like a symbiotic relationship or if he's more of a parasite which has more of a negative connotation and he doesn't like that um but if you think of him more of a as a parasite then that splitting is negative um but with symbiotic the if you start using that language then it's it's more of a good thing like a superhero like they have to be split in order to do what they're trying to do yeah yeah maybe, maybe symbiotic is the right word for it but but, but it's a sort of it's a symbi- symbiotic seems to imply two organized things working together to create it to achieve mutually beneficial jobs and actually I think what this perhaps dramatizes is that um, that there are aspects of our personalities I'm talking about all of us really now that that are symbiotic by being paradoxical if that makes any sense so like um, you know our desire to be our desire to be cerebral is matched by our desire to be emotional and the two things don't they're not symbiotic in the traditional sense of the world they're not compatible but by still existing and yet and remaining uh, one of the theorists I look at is, is, a, is a psychoanalyst called Melanie Klein, and she has this great expression that says that um, entering into the world of reality is, is being able to bear the paradox of two, two, two mutually different things being able to exist at the same time, that, things, that, our, that our loved ones have the capacity to bring us great grief and great pleasure at the same time. And that, that is the essence of understanding sort of uh, reality at a logical sphere. Um, logic is bearing the paradox, as the phrase she used, is of our emotional sort of states. And maybe, maybe that's it. To understand Venom as a character, we have to bear the paradox of the fact that he is all these things and none of these things entirely. Wow, oh, that's deep. I like that quote a lot. What, what it's making me think of is um, is Carl Jung and yeah, okay. yeah. and his idea, like with the shadow. And, you know, that's kind of like his, you know, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an expert in this, but it, the shadow is kind of like the id, uh, Freud's id. But we want to, we're kind of ashamed of it. We want to stuff it down. Um, we don't like dealing with that darkness. It causes us anxieties. But he made the point, the more you stuff it down, the more it emerges. And so, yeah, you have to integrate this idea of the, the paradox, the dark and the light. Yeah, it's not so much you have to integrate it, you have to um, tolerate its lack of integration almost, yeah? These terms, we can use lots of them if we want and, and, and get bogged down in terminology and that will be fun for me because what am I, I'm a film theorist, I love terminology, but um, you know, it's shadows, um, all these words that psychoanalytics use and get often criticised for creating these sort of you know, rigid structures which sort of don't bear any empirical data, which, you know, is a fair critique. I prefer to think of them as sort of terms to describe um, a very basic thing, which is that in our in our own minds, we have competing voices. Um, and uh, we are very good at splitting ourselves into multiple personalities, yeah? And this idea that we are cohesive is actually quite a dangerous idea. Um, it's not too dangerous because one has to think of oneself as a, as a whole single thing. But at the same time, 
you know, if you write down on a piece of paper the things that you think define you as a human being, you're probably either writing down the things that you are worried other people think you are, or writing down the things you hope you are occasionally. Yeah, if I write mm. down the word nice on a piece of paper, which I think is a, a trait I'd like to think I am, um, I'm not nice all the time, yeah? Um, and my ability not to be nice doesn't destroy my ability to also be nice. This is what I mean by bearing the paradox. So actually, we're, we, 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 are, we are fragments. We're, I'm this in this instance, and I'm this in this instance, and I'm like this because I'm talking to you on a podcast, but I'm going to be very different later on when I go for a beer with my friends. Uh, I'm going to be very different when I talk to my students the next day. I am different people in different scenarios. Um, the, the trick is, for emotional well-being, uh, not, to, not to go, crap, that means that I now am doomed to anxiety, um, the trick is to go right. Well, all of those things that can exist at the same time, and yet I can find some sort of sol solace in all that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there is kind of like a like a social thing, like for you to be, for mental health, you have to be your authentic self all of the time. Right. And and I would kind of argue that that if you were the same exact person or you act the same exact way in all situations, that's not going to work out for you so well. You know, if you're yeah. if you are you who you are when you go out and have a beer with the friends with friends in your classroom, I don't know how long you would have a job for. Um, yeah. Slash other way around, how long I would continue to have friends? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it so there compartmentalizing ourselves is to a certain extent kind of kind of healthy it makes more sense for eddie to be eddie in some situations and some situations call on him to be venom yeah absolutely yeah i agree um uh we haven't well, there's, a, there's a certain phrase people like to use maybe it's just an englishism um, where, where people say, I'm just one of those people, right? I am who I am, and you either like me or you don't. Yeah? Yeah. Those people are all dicks. Uh, like, all of them. All people that, every time they say that, you think, yeah, no, we just don't like you. Like, those are the people that, um, you know, there are some, uh, you know, not to get too political on this podcast, but there are some political leaders around the world in many different continents that are like they are all the time and are completely uncompromising. Right. And, and there are bad things about all of them, very bad things about that. Um, you know, Eddie, Eddie's, and, 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 and the structure of this movie doesn't work. If Eddie is Venom when he's supposed to be Eddie, um, he, he, he's, not gonna, he's not going to um, you know, get the girl or live in society, but Venom needs to exist for the film to work. So uh, almost, I think, I, I'm talking myself into thinking that basically this, is, this film is dramatising the basic narrative structure of all superhero movies, right? Which is that in order for superheroes to exist in the social realm, they need an alternative identity that is normalizing. And for all of them to save the day, they need an identity that is beyond the social realm. Um, and Venom sort of completely goes with that and pushes it to the extreme. Because on one hand, you get sort of handsome Tom Hardy, and on the other hand, you get, as I say, what, does he eat deers and bunnies and things like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Venom. So yeah, that's fun. Yeah, so it kind of like now that now I'm thinking about because usually we talk about Venom as an anti-hero, and you know I'll be honest, I've never really read like 
the Venom comic series, like for his wow. own, it's always been in context of like in the Amazing Spider-Man or things like that. Um, so in, in that case, he's always just plain villain. Um, but what I'm getting at is kind of like this idea of an anti-hero is someone who, uh, you know, they're kind of doing the right thing, but their morals are a lot more lax than say like Superman. Um, they have different standards of morality. But our conversation is kind of making me wonder if if Venom works as an anti-hero. Because, why, why, why doesn't he, because of, because of the, the splitting. Because to me, an anti-hero doesn't have that splitting. Like, Deadpool is Deadpool with the mask on or off. Um, That's or the Punisher, he he doesn't so much have that splitting, but so with with Venom, when he has to take on the bad guys, then he becomes Venom in the same way, say like Batman does. And so like yes, there's the different standards where you know Venom might eat the bad people, and Batman doesn't kill. So I guess yeah, there's the different standards, but I guess the the putting on the mask more so with the seems to me it's to align more with heroes than an anti-hero yeah i guess i guess i'm trying to think like i guess the difference is also the 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 other struct the usual structure of clark kent superman peter parker slash all the others as spider-man um is that they is that the character has to sort of accept moral responsibility for being both people. Yeah, okay. Peter Parker. What? What if Spider Man does something bad? Peter Parker feels guilty over it. Yeah. Right. Um. They're, they're not. They are the same person. They're just wearing as a good. You're, they're wearing different masks. Whilst Venom, or at least Venom as the title character, rather than the character of Venom within the movie, is actually two separate people. Two separate characters that together have to sort of achieve some sort of symbiotic relationship. Venom, Eddie isn't completely responsible for what Venom does, and yet is kind of responsible at the same time. Yeah, and and there's not many of them that have this fraught relationship with what they. I guess I guess a good another example would be perhaps the Hulk. Mm, um, okay. Is another example of this um, this version of trying to keep the beast at bay and use the beast whilst not 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 sort of um controlling it entirely relationship um but even then there's a sort of you know bruce banner is the reason the hulk exists and all this sort of stuff um eddie is largely blameless as to why venom is in his body unless i miss something yeah he's it's not really his fault that venom happens to attach himself to him um, it's more about what he then has to do because he's been attached to him. So there's a there's a sort of more uh, schizophren schizophrenic is that the right word? It might be in, in terms of theory, but perhaps not in terms of how we use that term now. Um, there's a schizoid relationship between Venom and Eddie that isn't quite as apparent in all the others. Even Batman knows he's he's still Bruce Wayne when he puts on the mask. He just wishes sort of he didn't have to as much. Right, yeah, no, there is uh, there is a break, using schizophrenic in that way, there is definitely a break between who Venom is and who's Eddie. Um, that is kind of where the movie 
um, diverges from the comics because in the comics the the alien symbiote takes on characteristics of the host and Eddie is kind of he's more aggressive and more uh, a little bit more violent so then it, it just uh, oh man it just it just kind of like blows that out explodes those different kind of characteristics um, but you're right in the movie this alien has its own consciousness and its own characteristics aside from Eddie. So Eddie's Eddie before he has the um before he has the alien symbiote before he has venom, he's not particularly violent. He's a little full of himself. Um make some choices I wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> but um um but yeah, so there is like that's kind of where the film goes off in a different direction, but there is a there's a split between what is strictly Venom and strictly Eddie. And I don't know so much, maybe you picked up on this, I didn't, but Eddie doesn't seem to feel particularly guilty about what Venom does. No, well, I guess, I guess, I guess te- te- I'm trying to think, te- I'm now trying to think of the ethical responsibility I would have to feel if I was taken over by an alien symbiote, and that's a difficult thing to do uh, on a Friday afternoon here in the UK. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, I, you know, should he feel guilty? Because he's, it's not him doing it, right? Right. It's a, taking control of his body. Um, so yeah, he doesn't feel guilty by the things he's doing. He, I think he feels a responsibility to try and stop it in the same way that when your dog starts biting at people, it's your job to go and uh, grab the leash. But, but you don't feel necessarily... Maybe you do feel guilty if your dog starts biting someone. I have no... Yeah, but it's the, you're right. There's, there's a lack of guilt there. There's a lack of guilt there that's really interesting. Um, because so many other tortured superheroes are Bruce Banner is forever guilty about everything that's sort of his Naples Ultra right right well with so with Eddie like there's the end of the film where he's like okay he's laying down the ground rules like if we're gonna do this here are the rules you can't you can only eat bad people and I'm I was wondering, as much as I enjoyed the film, how much control do you have over this, Eddie? Because, like, Venom can take over your body and has without without your control. If he wanted to eat somebody, he just would. So It's interesting. It's interesting because, um... Yeah, again, again, again. Okay, so splitting. Splitting, um, in psychoanalytic terms, is a defense mechanism. Um, and the reason one enacts a split within your psyche is because you are unable or unwilling to engage with the sort of uh, the acknowledgement that the negative feelings you are having are are yours. It's a refusal to, to own it. Yeah. So whether that's be tormenting yourself by sort of having that aggressive, anxious voice in your head going, "You should do better. You should be better." Um, in a way, that is a defense mechanism because rather than sort of owning the owning the feelings of inadequacy one pushes it onto a third party and thing so maybe if we read eddie along those lines yeah um eddie is split um and therefore is not dealing with the sort of um ethical social uh reality that there's a thing taken over his body um that is part of him quite literally yeah yeah um, i really like that perspective of him because um in the early part of the film, when he goes and he looks at his his girlfriend or fiance's um, email, and 
there's real there's no like even like um moral quandary about this you don't see that he just like oh her laptop's open and jumps into it with like not a second thought and i don't know if he necessarily ever feels regret over that action like that was him doing wrong once his life just goes to shit and he's you know he doesn't have his job anymore and whatever he blames the the guy that he was interviewing uh, i think that david was his name or drake um so even before venom takes over his body he's not he's not taking a whole lot of responsibility for his actions or the consequences of his actions and maybe venom is just kind of like you know making that more noticeable yeah it's pushing it pushing it onto some of his third party i think is it venom that says like um she doesn't know that we'll get her back yeah um, williams's character and i think you know uh, you know i'm kind of willing to give this film the benefit of the doubt in lots of respects because it is kind of balmy and fun yeah. but i think the, the rep what uh, one by the way on a side note why is michelle williams um, having spent the last 15 years of her career being in pretty decent, retrouble dramas, has now decided to be in all the sort of most crazy shit that's been out, out in the last sort of 12 months. I don't know, but that's that's for another podcast, perhaps. But, <laughs> well, so why is Michelle Williams in this film is one question. And second, why is Michelle Williams' character in this film? Because, because you know, in the sort of post-Me Too era... The gender politics of having this uh, ex-boyfriend, who um, who she has split up with for very sensible reasons, um, having this quite predatory relationship with her, and that she is basically um, unable to accept that she has left him, and is is basically befriending her as a as a guise to seduce her and unable to accept that this might not be the way the narrative goes down. And then added on the top, you've got this predatory alien voice literally saying, we will get her back, voicing it without any kind of choice in the matter. You know, predatory is the word I will use again here. And again, it's, it's the voice of Venom that says that, yeah? yeah? If you think about it, that actually doesn't fit with the internal logic of the narrative even. Because why does Venom want her back? Venom has no interest in this human woman other than perhaps to eat her um but but other than that like it doesn't actually make any sense that the venom would be motivated by that right so venom is literally eddie's darker it shadow to use the term you know Jung's term you use there at that point yeah you're right i mean besides like i think there's a scene where he kind of like venom kind of takes a shine to michelle williams character um and like she she has the the symbiote for for a little bit but yeah but but still you're right in like a in a romantic way it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because venom doesn't get anything out of it just eddie yeah but it's not even romantic is it it's um it's it's lustful and predatory it's i will have this thing back um yeah so so there is an element where I think we can read Venom as, and I think the, a lot of the, it, to be more positive about the movie, a lot of the humour is based on that kind of idea, right? Eddie is the voice of reason and society, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. And Venom just says the shit that we sort of are even scared to think, let alone sort of say out loud, right, about people and about things. And, uh, and there's a huge pleasure in that at the same time of this sort of um, voice of abject villainy 
um, in your own head. Right. No, I'm kind of thinking of like, because this is literally what plays out in the movie almost, is like, you know, people who, um, and I'll say people because it's not just guys who do this, but, you know, you know that the person that you're interested in doesn't return the feelings, but you're like, oh, I'll be, you know, it's fine. I understand. I respect them. I'll just be friends with them. And, but in the back, you're like, if I'm nice enough, I'll win them over. Um, and that's really what's playing out with, with Eddie. And kind of like, in, it, it's in a subversive way too. Like, they don't know that I'm going to get them. If I'm just nice enough, I'll win them over. Yeah. And again, that, that is the classic defense mechanism of splitting there, right? Because what's going on there, if you take a step back there, is you've got someone that is allowed to think they are nice whilst expressing sentiments that's fundamentally not nice. It isn't nice to act nice to achieve something for your own end. It's nice to be nice, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, so, that, so that's not actually nice, what's happening there. You know, I, I will act this way in order to achieve this goal has no nice characteristic in there. Yet what the, 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 the splitting defense mechanism allows is that there's the, you know, there's the part of me that I'm going to say is me, uh, and that's the nice bit. And then this thought going on here is the other bit. It's my subconscious. It's the bit. It's the dark side of myself. I think is a colloquial expression we'd often use. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the bit of ourselves that's not me, but yet is is happening in my brain, which begs the question: If it's happening in your brain, who is it? <laughs> you know. Yeah. No. Oh, so it's making me think. So we kind of got we got the splitting in a in two different ways in that like on one hand it makes sense it's healthy you act one way in this context you act this way in a different context and that's kind of what we just have to do to get yeah. to, to work in society um but then there's a, this idea of splitting as more of a defense mechanism where there, there's some denial to it like i'm i'm not really this way i'm acting like this not for these unwholesome motivations but I'm, I'm i'm really a nice person so like two yeah. different senses of splitting i guess yes and i guess you you, you articulate well there. the difference is that one of them you're aware of the sort of dual roles you're playing and you accept them um and the other you are um you are, you are sort of positioning yourself as one of those things when actually you're all you're all of them um and and to complicate it further at least this is again from the theoretical system that I've been working from um, uh, you mentioned that Eddie's full of himself yeah okay um, so the, the th again the theorist that is sort of my inspiration for all my thinking psychoanalytically is, is, a, is a woman named Melanie Klein and she uh, writes a lot about narcissism mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you've ever, like talked about it or, or something yourself the Freudian notion of narcissism which is this idea we're sort of born into a world uh, where we think we're the center of every, you know we're the center of the world we are the world um, and then we realize we're not we're one of so many things and that is the birth of our, our narcissistic tendencies is that basically we are all crushed by the realization that we aren't actually the center of everyone's attention um, hmm. we're just one little cog in the machine and Klein complicates that by just saying yes that's true but actually we're not born into the world thinking we're the center of attention because we're not born into the world thinking we're a thing, it actually takes quite a lot of cognitive ability to work out that you're a thing. So she argues that the birth of narcissism is the birth of our ability to split ourselves, because ultimately what narcissism is, is your ability to look at yourself and say, I am this and amazing, 
if that makes any sense. I haven't gone too sort of down into the theoretical quagmire there. So it's, yeah. it's sort of going, um, I, I am a thing, and that thing is great. Yeah, that's, that's narcissism. So the moment you can go, I am a thing, is the moment you've distanced yourself from, um, you're actually, you know, you're thinking about yourself. You've jumped outside your own body and you're looking back in and you've split yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So actually, all narcissism, all narciss, all splitting tendencies are fueling narcissism because it's about preserving that lovely thing that you have claimed yourself to be. So I am nice. So all the stuff that I do that isn't nice, I'm going to have to pretend isn't me. So Eddie is a narcissist. I, I wrote this down actually. The mm. one thing that does define all this behaviour is at the beginning he's obsessed with all this, you know, quest for truth, quest for justice because he's such an amazing reporter and he can't possibly compromise his wonderful show that everyone's watching. And then he is, oh my God, I'm so downtrodden, the world's against me. Both of them are equally narcissistic. Yeah. They're just taking the blame on different things, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, he's full of himself and therefore has to split himself into different formats to keep that ideal vision of who he is alive. Oh, okay, that's fair. Because like on one hand... Because you got Venom, who's like, I also am a loser on my planet, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and Eddie's not really dealing with the reality that the reason why he's so do downtrodden is because of his own his own doing. Yeah. Right. Like he's amazing. It's everyone else who has gotten him to this place. It's everyone else and the alien symbiote that lives within him that right. is the is the stuff of bad behavior. And you're right, I haven't thought about that line. Venom's a loser on his planet, but rather than go back to his planet and fix his loser status, he's just chosen a different planet where he can be exactly as he was, but not a loser anymore. Right, right. Yeah. I think when I think of some of the people that I've thought to myself that they're a little bit of a narcissist, they, um, and not like actually diagnosing people, but people who I thought were full of themselves, they do seem yeah. to tend to be stay in situations where they look good rather than branching out and kind of like getting out of their comfort zone and and trying new things and seeing if they can stretch themselves because in those situations they might not look as great and then they have to deal with it they also tend to be the most deluded of people right right yeah absolutely which there there is an element of that with with Ellie, uh, eddie it, it's hard to be self-conscious and a narcissist in right. an odd way right actually because um, being self-conscious is, is well actually being self-conscious often leads to anxiety because it's exactly the, the opposite problem you're dealing with right uh, narcissism is about holding on to some ideal object of yourself so firmly um, that to that you'd rather you'd rather split yourself into three and keep the good bit mm -hmm. than accept the sort of realization that sometimes you can be um, Sometimes you can be good and sometimes you can be bad and it will depend on your mood and the situation you're in and whether you get it right that day. Wow. So, keeping, staying mindful of time, sure. if you had like just some, some summary thoughts about Eddie as a character and you, yeah. how, would you how would you put it? Because we've kind of, well, we've well, gone in different directions. I, I, think, I think if I was like writing a ridiculously... Um, controversial uh, opinion piece for some magazine or something about this movie I would say that the movie is the main character in the, just like the main character is desperate to hold on to some ideal version of what he is whilst also pushing to the sideline all these weird bits, the film seems to have exactly that same problem and it is a film that bills itself as this sort of 
dark alternative to Spider-Man, and it isn't that at all, and bills itself as this sort of madcap comedy, and it isn't that at all either, um, the film splits itself. Um, and I think that the, the pleasure, if you can find it in this movie, is picking the one you like and sort of pushing the others to the, to the sidelines. Um, so, so in many ways, it, it, I could almost credit the filmmakers with doing something very clever, which is to make a film that has the personality of its main protagonist. However, I feel that's giving it too much credit. I think it might just be a bit ropey around the edges, but... But I like I like the, I like what they've done with Eddie as a character here because I think there's something very interesting about taking Spider-Man away and making villain uh, making Venom the sort of focus and uh, without that hero to play off against it can actually be quite a much more interesting character to talk about uh, as as demonstrated hopefully by this conversation um, so so I like it and I would definitely watch another one but um, I wouldn't exactly expect it to be brilliant. Fair enough, um, and I'm. As a movie, so like some people, you know, they're like, if it's not perfect, if it's not just like the comics, then it's trash. Um, uh, or even if it's not like an objectively great movie, I, I'm here for a good time, you know. For yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think there's a good time to be had in this. You yeah. have to you have to come you have to you know have to work a bit with it, but it will reward it if you do. Yeah, I think maybe you know if you're if you're a little more self-conscious and not to the point of anxiety and you're like we don't have to take ourselves so seriously we can sit back and enjoy this movie and that's what that's what i tried to do it seemed like you did too yeah um, i did yeah awesome well i man i really enjoyed these thoughts this is this was great stuff um and i i feel like we could probably talk about this movie for a few more hours um oh. which i'm not going to do to you um, All the listeners, I think, actually. I think, you know, we should just be mindful of their patience levels. Um. Uh, I think we're going to get a few people who are listening to this who would just be like, I don't, I don't know. People will have to let me know in some kind of comments or, or tweet, tweet at me about what do you think about Eddie as a narcissist because I completely agree, but, you know, it's hard to, especially if that's one of your favorite characters, um, to see the flaws in them. Or maybe because you do see the flaws, that's why you like them so much. Um, but where, where can we find you, Alex? Where do, where are you on social media? You can find me uh, personally at Freud is Funny on Twitter. Um, and if you're interested in the Fantasy Animation Research Network um, and would like to think about submitting a blog to us, that would be great. Uh, again, you can find us on Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research uh, on Twitter. Um, or perhaps easier, go to the website fantasy animation. Uh, dot org and there's lots of ways to contribute there um yeah that's and, and um thanks for having me on the show it's been really fun and um hope to do it again sometime perhaps yeah i think that would be great that's all for this week find other podcast episodes on stitcher soundcloud and itunes along with blog posts videos and events on supersite.com